Hi there, David. Hey, how are you doing, Adam? Good. How goes it? Good. Yeah. Good. You got yeah. casino fever? Casino fever. Uh, they've rolled the dice and <laughs> uh, and placed their wagers, and, and we're all in on Everett. Is it's that it's a high-stakes wager. A high-stakes yeah. wager on Everett. Okay, it's September 17th, 2014, and you're listening to the Scrum Podcast, where we talk about media and politics from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking with the executive director of EMILY's List, a powerful political action committee that raises money for pro-choice female Democratic candidates. But first... Heather Foley correctly predicted the winners of a bevy of Massachusetts primary races. The governor's race, the LG's race, the AG's race, and the treasurer's race in the Scrum's first ever Massachusetts politics prediction challenge. Now, as promised, we're going to give her a chance to crow about her accomplishment. And Heather Foley is here with us in the Scrum Studio. Heather, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. How did you get these races so right? What was your method? It's very much like when someone's pet octopus picks the World Cup winner every year. <laughs> There's no real rhyme or reason to it. The blind squirrel gets the nut. It could be oh, the ultimate headline you, you must of have had my some blog. kind of, you know, thought process or system. Uh, cause, my cause thought it, process was there is about a two and a half minute commercial on Law and Order. Yeah. I've got two and a half minutes to to special burn victims this unit, out. obviously. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> you know, I've got two minutes to to bust this out before I can report back and say, "Okay, I did it." By the way, in. in a way, it's kind of an inspirational tale because I actually we we've never met before, though we've interacted on Twitter, where some of our listeners may know you as at Hotel Foxtrot. And yes. I had to to track you down. I was trying to find various people I know from Twitter to get them to enter. I remember you sent me a message after, which was like, "All right, my terrible entries are in." So. For any kids Don't listening give at up home. kids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Downplaying expectations. It's, right. a, it's a common thing in politics. I know. would rather pleasantly surprise than disappoint right. somebody any day of the week. <laughs> so did you consult with anyone? Did you talk to your friends? Did you take a poll of polls? Or did you just hop in and uh, Well, I guess luckily um, there's only about 243 people voted. So I was able <laughs> to call some people. And, uh, you know, I kind of did my own informal polling. Nice. That way I went to, you know, the nursing home because that's, you know, who comes out in droves and asked all the that nanas is. who they were voting for. And That's very smart. Now, now, uh, are you a lifetime resident and voter here in uh, here in the Commonwealth? If you're implying I voted illegally before I was 18, <laughs> I am offended at the notion. Just because I'm from Southie doesn't Vote mean I'm early shady. Early and often, early right. and often. But you are I'm uh, lifelong South Boston. You do uh, have a little bit of that accent. I, I wasn't going to say. One of the things you you did uh, really well. One of the many things you did well in your predictions was was nail Maura Healy's crazy strong showing because a lot of people picked her to win but picked her winning by a slim margin i think i thought she was going to win by a little bit you were really really close had you been impressed by healy as a campaigner before do you hate warren tolman do you hate labor what's, what's uh, well I'm, i mean in general i hate most people in most things yeah fair enough um so it, hate <laughs> so for me shouldn't right affect... in with the punditry right. the political punditry like, yeah, you're one of us yeah i love it big grouch but <laughs> as far as healy goes did you watch her campaign at all? A lot no. of people didn't No, I mean, know. I, I shouldn't say I didn't watch it. I mean, I, I like to think I'm, despite all evidence to the contrary, I like to think I'm a somewhat informed Well, you're clearly more voter. informed than everyone else who listens to this podcast. Right. I wouldn't say that, <laughs> that but, oh, but you did, so we'll go with it. <laughs> well, it was I, dead on. Well, I have to ask, since you are clearly the best prognosticator in Massachusetts politics uh, here, anywhere, Preach. I have to ask you to look forward and tell us who is going to win uh, the gubernatorial contest between Martha Coakley and Charlie Baker. Well, if there's one 
thing I learned from watching Breaking Bad that was not meth-related. <laughs> it's to go out at number one. So if you fools think I'm predicting another winner of anything, you are sorely mistaken. <laughs> we really, we, it's, yeah, really, it's clearly the, yeah. the smartest person who entered by far. Much smarter than us. Heather Foley, thank you for coming in. Thank you for the donuts you brought us also. I ate um, all the chocolate ones, so that's... I hope no one likes chocolate. And, uh, and congratulations on really a hell of a showing, getting, uh, getting these races right with incredible accuracy. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. If you're curious about Heather Foley's predictions, you can check them out on our website, blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. Early money is like yeast. That's the acronym for EMILY's List, the powerful pack that raises money for Democratic pro-choice women. Stephanie Shriak is the executive director of EMILY's List. She was in Boston for the day, and she had some time in her schedule to stop by the Scrum podcast. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you. David, I know, has a bunch of stuff he wants to talk with you about, but I want to start with one question um, that has been on my mind. I'm wondering how you guys decide when you have a, a couple candidates in a given race who seem to support what Emily's List stands for. Like, for example, the Massachusetts Democratic gubernatorial primary in which you had Martha Coakley, a pro-choice Democratic woman, and Juliet Kayyem, a pro-choice Democratic right. woman. How you decide who to back. It's been reported that uh, Emily's List suggested to Juliet Kayyem that she maybe get out of the race. You guys endorsed Coakley early. How do you make those calculations? Well, just to remind everybody, Emily's List is a 29-year-old organization committed to electing pro-choice Democratic women. Our sole mission is to really change the face of Congress and our government by adding Democratic women to the mix. Uh, so when we do get engaged in a race, it is not taken lightly. We have three million members now, women and men, who care so much about changing who's serving in Congress and in these gubernatorial races and legislatures and around the country, that we look at it very, very closely. We don't always get in. But when we looked at this governor's race in Massachusetts, uh, we saw a great opportunity to elect the first woman governor here in Massachusetts and to support someone who's been such a leader as attorney general. So it really became clear that Martha was not only going to be the front runner, but the strongest candidate in the general election, which ultimately is the most important piece of this decision. And so it, I don't, we don't take these decisions lightly. Uh, Juliet Kayyem is a very talented candidate. I hope that we have an opportunity in the future to support her for another election because we think she's got a bright future. But just to push on, on you a little bit on that, uh, because uh, not only did did you guys choose very quickly in this race uh, with Martha Coakley, but last year uh, you chose to, to back Catherine Clark very early uh, in a race where there was another woman in that congressional primary, uh, uh, Karen Spilka, uh, who was also very good on on some of the issues that you guys support. There's some bitterness about each of those. Some of that comes from just people who are backing the other mm -hmm. candidate. But but a little bit of, geez, you know, the, the ones you backed seem to be kind of in the club in a sense. People who, who are in certain circles and well-known to insiders. Insiders rather than outsiders. Yeah. Is, is there – did it have anything to do with – is there a bit of a bias toward institutional success over sort of an outsider coming in? First, as you're going through that list, I'm thinking, wow, we've had a lot of races here with numerous women running, which I hadn't thought about it all in one <laughs> we've shot. We've had like just that. a lot of races That's, here in Massachusetts, well, actually. Yes, you have. Uh, yes, you have. And, and truthfully, this is 
you know, this is a great problem to have, and I wish we had this more often. I mean, you've brought up three races of how many hundreds of races that right. have happened, right. even in Massachusetts and, in the last 10 years. And actually, you could add I mean, uh, there's um, always Elizabeth Warren, men. where Marissa DeFranco was also in that race. Sure. You know, but anyway. Right, exactly. But when you, when you think about it like that, I mean, there's no reason why there aren't numerous women running in every single race in this country. And we are so far from that point. When that happens, I can retire and move on and, and we can do other things. But to, to your question, we, do, we really do look closely at the viability of the candidates. We also look at the entire dynamic of the race. And so in that, in that uh, Catherine Clark decision that we made, uh, it was a decision made late. Uh, it was one that we have an opportunity to add a woman to the House of Representatives, an institution where there's only 18% women across the board, which, by the way, puts the United States at 77th in the world in elected, women in elected office. So you can see we have got a driving mission. So we look really, really closely. And what we saw in a race was that there was a, a man uh, coming up who actually was a little bit more conservative than we would definitely like to see uh, in our Democratic men in office. And when if we don't get engaged here, we're going to lose this opportunity. Mm. And so we look very closely at the numbers. Now, in other races, I know this is not in uh, your area, but this year as well, we had a race in Illinois. Uh, there were three women running uh, in the primary, two men. Uh, this was in Jesse Jackson Jr.'s mm-hmm. open seat. Mm-hmm. And we looked at it and went, well, and here's the deal. We had historically support, endorsed two of them in the past, had a relationship <laughs> with the third in conversations, and decided we're going to stay out because we knew one of them was going to come through, and it was unnecessary for us to use our limited resources. So we look at it very closely. I got a question about yeah. uh, your mission and how it's evolved over the years. Most people think of Emily's List, as you said, about being uh, uh, electing pro-choice Democratic women. As you know, there's been some criticism from some on the left recently of Emily's List being uh, focused inordinately, the critics say, on female candidates who are pro-choice and not enough on these other issues that are important to people on the left or progressives. So have you guys been shifting? Is it fair to say your mission's shifted even Mm -hmm. if it's marginally uh, in recent years or not? No, no, the mission is clear, and it hasn't shifted. And the nice thing about having such a nice, simple mission to elect pro-choice Democratic women, we, you know, particularly when, again, we don't have that many women in office yet. We're working on it, and we're moving in the right direction, and momentum's building, including right here in New England, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Rhode Island, mm-hmm. New Hampshire. Uh, but we still have to keep that, that pressure on. What we have seen and why we're talking about economic justice, we're talking about equal pay and minimum wage and a fair shot for women and families to succeed in this country, is because that's what our candidates are talking about. That is what our candidates are focused on. And we even did, and you can check it out on our website, emilyslist.org, did an impact study to look back over the last couple decades on where Democratic women have been on issues across the board vis-a-vis Democratic men, Republican women, and Republican men. And what we found is that our Democratic women across the board are, on average, more progressive in their voting than any other group in, in Congress of those, of those four groups. Interestingly, Republican women used to be more mm. progressive than mm-hmm. their Republican male counterparts. Now, they weren't as progressive as Democratic men, right. obviously, but they were more progressive until really the rise of the Tea Party. And yeah. now they are 
have been equal, which is sad. Uh, it seems to me that, that the Republicans now only have uh, women from very small states out in the, you know, in the hinterlands. But that's <laughs> um, but you do have sort of those moderates. But increasingly in the House and at the lower levels, it does seem to be more sort of not very many women. And those that, that get through are sort of very conservative Tea Party types. And and I think you look at uh, Jody Ernst in, uh, in Iowa would be an example of that. That's is that, a really it, good Is example. that just because of the, of the nature of the Republican primary it process? It is absolutely the nature of the Republican primary and of the Republican Party. The Republican Party nationally has shifted so far to the right, particularly on matters of access to health care and economic opportunity, that for a candidate to come through those primaries, they have to move even further to the right. And women have to prove themselves that they are further to right. the right. And so you end up with a Joni Ernst or a Terry Lynn Land in, uh, in Michigan who's running against Gary Peters, incredibly conservative, out of the mainstream, arguably of even the Republican Party, uh, actual Election Day voters. Uh, and this this is uh, this is not good for the direction of the country. Has frankly. that been though, in an odd way, a, a boon for you guys, and in particular the fundraising you do? My understanding is that Emily's List raises more money from women than any other political fundraising group. So has that shift you're talking about helped you? No. Provide, uh, help you raise the money that, that's crucial yeah, to do the, what you do? The clear contrast between our Democratic uh, Emily's List women and the Republican Party in general, that contrast has n- not only helped with financial resources because <laughs> women are stepping up going, whoa, we do not want these folks you know, writing up laws that are going to just completely change the opportunity I have. In fact, it's going to roll back the clock by decades. And in some states, they have succeeded in rolling back the clock by decades. Uh, So that has helped, but it's also energized the voters. And what you're seeing all across the country, including here in the New England area in Massachusetts, is a growing gender gap where women continue to vote for Democrats because Democrats are providing a vision of fair shot for economic opportunity, and the Republicans want to roll the clock back. Um, Martha Coakley has had trouble raising money, you know, for such a clear front runner, you know, even though she's been on your page, you know, to raise money through through Emily's list for you know nearly a year now. Is part of it that there isn't the sort of clear Republican bogeyman here in Massachusetts? You've got Charlie Baker, who's been who is now the Republican nominee, who's been sort of the presumptive nominee, who is, you know, running as sort of a moderate, came out in favor of the buffer zone uh, uh, law that they passed here. Is that part of the problem? And and how is she going to be able to are you going to be able to raise enough funds for her to to help her out? Well, I want to dispute the Charlie (laughs) Baker as a moderate point right off the bat, because not only did he run, in essence, as a Tea Party candidate in 2010 and has not shifted his entire belief system before this election. But this is the same guy who came out after the Hobby Lobby decision and said, oh, it just doesn't matter. Well, it matters to the women working at Hobby Lobby in Massachusetts. Just to hop in for a second. I, you know, having covered the 2010 race, I know Coakley is saying he ran as a Tea Party candidate. I think that's very disputable. But leaving that aside, uh, yeah, I, I know that Martha Coakley worked very hard. And I think I probably got some press releases from you guys, too, highlighting what Baker had to say about the Hobby Lobby decision. Yeah, you know, but uh, – but also just on on the fundraising piece, I think two things are going on you know, with a multi-candidate, very serious primary that mm-hmm. Massachusetts had. You know, 
you know, folks were sort of in different camps. What we're seeing now is, you know, everybody is coalescing around Martha Coakley. This is a huge opportunity for, for Democrats, and they're not going to miss it. Uh, so you're going to see increased fundraising here in Massachusetts. Sort of the national question, and this one is one that we've been dealing with at Emily's List, the national conversation, I don't have to tell anybody who's listening or you two, is about the United States Senate. Right. <laughs> right? All the energy is about the Senate. Like, yeah. And we do need to save the Democratic majority in the Senate. So a lot of the fundraising interest uh, by national donors are going into, well, races like Jean Shaheen in New Hampshire uh, right, against right. your former <laughs> Massachusetts Senator, Scott Brown. Uh, so that's A race that's you've a, taken quite a bit of interest uh, in. Yes, we are very, yeah. very interested. We like running against Scott Brown. And, <laughs> Uh, and we're looking forward to winning it's this good one to be able again to in run New against Hampshire the same candidate well. again. Yeah, uh, yeah. correct. Uh, very interesting. I know David wants to ask you a bit more about the New England landscape, but I got to ask you about the evolution on the left or among Democrats when it comes to talking about abortion. You talked about the way that uh, conservatives have have changed on issues of interest to you guys, but. As you remember, in 2005, Hillary Clinton gave this much-discussed speech in which she said that for many women, abortion is a sad and even tragic choice. It's hard to imagine, as we look ahead to a possible Hillary Clinton run for the presidency, it's hard to imagine those words coming out of her mouth in 2016. So I'm wondering, uh, I guess, how you think Hillary Clinton may have evolved on abortion rights issues, uh, and if you think that Democrats have, have maybe become more, I don't want to say more strident, but less eager to look for middle ground in the way that Clinton seemed to look for middle ground back in 2005. It's an especially interesting question in light of uh, Wendy Davis. Uh, yes. you know, just just had the whole it's conversation about her own uh, past abortion that she wrote about in her book. Yeah, well, f- first off, uh, Secretary Clinton has always been incredibly pro-choice and supportive of reproductive rights. Well, but when you say you know, it's a sad but, and even tragic choice for many women, that's but that's that is that's a big a feeling. But yeah. that's I don't think that's a caveat. I mean, that is it is about women having choices. Well, but and that's sig- what we're really about here. And even if you talk about Wendy Davis, as she described what she went through to make the decision and the very difficult decision she had to make for for women, it's just about what we're for. Folks need to be able to make a decision. And what has happened are two things. One, women in this country have watched the Republican Party just try to strip away one piece of access to reproductive care by another and another. And then they went after birth control, mm-hmm. which I will even say as a relatively young woman who definitely grew up under Roe v. Wade completely, I never believed that they would go after birth control. And I was wrong. And so that has happened, which has really energized women voters. You're talking and about the, the, contra- the battle over the contraception and, mandate under "quote unquote" a- Obama, a- right? Absolutely, but also the pushes for these personhood initiatives in a number of states that would outlaw certain forms of birth control and significant forms of birth control, which is a continuing fight that we're having. Maybe not in this part of the country, but in other parts of the country. So let me just take one more crack at this. Hillary Clinton made those comments about abortion being a sad and tragic choice for many women back in 2005. It indicated to me this attempt to find some sort of a middle ground. On, at least rhetorically. Yeah, at least right. rhetorically. Yeah, but, is... but, but it was important. No, no, no. And I know you said it's talking yeah. about feelings rather than policy. But she said what she did for a reason. She wanted, I think, to suggest that it was appropriate to look for ways to minimize the number of abortions while also guaranteeing that women had the right to make the choice. Do you think that that oh. search has now fallen by the wayside as conservatives have gone so far to the right on reproductive issues. 
I, I think the, the women's community and the reproductive rights community in particular has you know, always looked for opportunities to limit the num- number of abortions. And you know how you do that? You provide birth control. You yep. provide access to Planned yep. Parenthood. You make sure people have access early on, uh, that they have better health care. I mean, all of the things that we fought for so hard to get in the health care reform was precisely to allow them to have full range of choices so they can make choices earlier. And, uh, boy, the birth control coverage in particular is one of the most important things that has happened for, for women in this country. And so the policies now that we are driving are really uh, the ones that are going to, you know, if, if I were Republican, I would be really pro-contraception. But right. they have different views of it than I do and, in a lot of places. So <laughs> right. I do want to ask you for your observation about New England because I think that to a lot of people today, they don't realize that New England has been somewhat retrograde uh, compared to a lot of the country in terms of electing women uh, and particularly to women in high office. Um and I wonder now if you look around and you see so many, you know, in New Hampshire and then Gina Raimondo now in, in Rhode Island and now the women here in Massachusetts, uh, can you still generate the excitement when you've just elected Catherine Clark and, and, and Elizabeth Warren and so forth as it become less of an uh, enthusiasm mm-hmm. generator? Well, voters, and particularly women voters, aren't looking to vote for women because they're women. And that's really important mm-hmm. here. Women voters are looking for candidates that are going to fight for women and families, are going to fight for a fair shot, particularly on economic issues. And we were t- we've been talking about yeah. uh, birth control and access to full access of reproductive care. But for women, this is all economic. If you can't control what your future is, how are you going to be able to provide for your family and plan your family? And so it's equal pay, minimum wage. These issues are driving it. And that's what women voters... and We've seen it in our own research at Emily's List. That's what they're looking for. What we have is a momentum here in the New England area around women's leadership and great women leaders who have taken on this challenge. And, yes, many of them are going to be breaking through glass ceilings. Uh, But the truth is what's most important to the people in Massachusetts, the people of Rhode Island, the people of New Hampshire – is that they are electing leaders who are going to fight for women and families. And those are the candidates we have in Martha Coakley and in Governor Maggie Hassan, who is Mm -hmm. the lone Democratic Mm -hmm. woman governor in the country. And I promised her she would not be the lone Democratic (laughs) woman governor in the country next year. Uh, And then, of course, Gina uh, Raimondo in Rhode Island. All right. That is going to do it for today's Scrum. Stephanie Shriak, thank you very much for being here with us. Yes, thank you so much. Great talk. Thank you. Stephanie Shriak is the executive director of Emily's List. Will you go to school and I tell you that you're equal? But in the big wide world, that just means half the people. And one thing you don't see. If you like what you hear on the Scrum, please subscribe to it in iTunes. You can also catch more from us on our blog, which you can find at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. The team here at the Scrum includes WGBH political analyst David Bernstein. David, thank you as always. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Adam. And WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis. Our producer is Abby Ruzica, and our engineer today was Jane Piffick. I'm WGBH news reporter Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.